Welcome to the Rams Writer Podcast. Tight angle, cross to Pearson, Pearson scores! Stephen Pearson scores for Derby County! Wisdom, it's right! For Scythe, heads on goal. It's looping. It's yeah! in! <laughs> it's, it's Craig for Scythe with a looping header at the back post. Sibley shoots across goal. Yeah! He scored! Louis Sibley in the 90th minute. The goal we wanted has come. Hello and welcome back to the Rams Writer podcast. Simon Long and Chris Holt here. A special episode today as we sit down with former DCFC Academy coach, CEO of iScout, and now turned BBC Radio Derby pundit, Darren Robinson. On this show, he gave us some brilliant insight into the club. We've learned a lot from him, and I'm sure you guys will do too. Remember, if you like the show, you can share and retweet. Follow Chris on Twitter at DCFC underscore CMH. And of course, you can follow me on Facebook, the Rams Right Podcast page, Rams Right Podcast group. Uh, also on Instagram, the Rams Writer Podcast, and on TikTok as well, the Rams Writer Podcast. Sit back, have a brew, and enjoy the show. So, Darren, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Are you well? Yeah, very well, thanks. I did have a chuckle when you mentioned Dead, so <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's enough fuel in my laptop to get us through the show. <laughs> I um, hope so. so. I'm looking forward to this evening's dialogue. <laughs> and Chris, good evening to yourself, mate. I know you're looking forward to this one. You've been bending my ear to ask, can we get Darren on? Can we try and get Darren on? And it's finally well, happened. You you make me sound like a stalker. And after this show, Darren will have a 150 <laughs> yard limit of restriction on me. No, <laughs> well, I'm we'll really... see how we go. You might be saying, can we get him off? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, as you, as you know, Simon, I talk about other sports and Darren's got such a good background in other sports. We want to look at more of psychology and mental aspects of sport rather than the physicalities of sport. And I think Darren is the perfect guest to discuss those topics. No, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, obviously, we know Darby's form at the minute. So we thought, get someone that's like yourself, vastly experienced in coaching, performance, psychology, all that, and just see if, you know, is this, you know, this this lull, I suppose, that Derby are going on at the minute, you know, if we can get your opinion and view on it. So, I mean, obviously, when you do have a loss of form, which we're going through at the moment, um, as, as obviously you've, you've coached, um, how, how do you sort of manage that? Well, I think a number of things. I think, Simon, you I would say we're more in a lull than a slump. Mm. So we, what we've had, two wins and a draw in the last six. So it's hardly a full-on slump. But I think that when – I've mentioned this a lot when I've done the, the work with, with, with Radio Derby, is that often um, the season goes through different stages and phases – so like Chris mentioned, we could periodize the season through a physical parameter, pre-season, building speed, building endurance, high intense running. Um, you know, so that, that and that's often readily blocked and, and created. Um, arguably now, as we're coming towards the end of March into April, from a physiological point of view, you would be wanting your teams to be reaching peak. And that's very much then around the design of your training programs and the way that you um, look after your squad. Now that that's that, of course, is an issue. I think in football because when we're looking at maybe some of the slump issues that you're discussing, um, 
the teams I've often been is that we've 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 overpeaked earlier in the season, and they the, the clubs have often become victims and as have gone into particularly the playoff scenarios, where where many players are actually deteriorating in their fitness simply because they've had too many days off, and around the squad management, and the way that the teams train, you you run risks of burnout, over repetition cabin fever at the training grounds environments. So you start often see teams coming off the edge of maybe some of the, the successful starts. From a psychological point of view, again, I think that the season goes through different phases. So pre-season would be around goal setting, clarity in goals, team at a team level and individual level, the creation of individual development plans. Um, you would then manage that through. You've then got at Christmas, if you like, the commitment phase and sacrifice phase, so staying on point with invariably because it's a high period of the season where there's high fixtures, but then the distractions of family parties, Christmas Day, kind of organise a night out for the lads. And of course, that became a hot topic on Radio Derby as well. When even well, it was actually during the course of the game because I I I just smelt in the the Fleetwood fixture that the Rams weren't quite at it. And, and I asked Dom Dietrich in the game if the training modality had changed in the week and then the Twitter went nuts because the fans were telling me that they'd obviously been to Cheltenham mm. um, and they'd been on the Gold Cup, which maybe we can we can touch upon, yeah. if you like, on that point of view. So, uh, yeah, so obviously now we're in this situation where arguably what's the most important psychological variable that we face now is confidence. And there's there's two elements to that. You have you have a self confidence for the individual, but you also have a collective efficacy, which my masters looked at, which was actually the belief in the team and within the group. And actually, the collective efficacy, the collective confidence, is much more uh, a, a, str- a stronger predictor of success than than actually your own self belief. So, and, and of course, this now brings in a number of issues and challenges around the whole management that Derby County have experienced during the course of the season. So, for example, we had an interim head coach that led recruitment. He recruited for one philosophy and one culture and one style. And he built and he built some players around some of that. Now, of course, that, in my opinion, that was limited. Why? Because it wasn't done with a recruitment department. It was done through, more, I would suggest, to a phone book and a personal network. And what we ended up creating was a squad dynamic with an over 30s and under 22s. And if we look at, say, for example, Plymouth, they've recruited a group that's actually been put in place over a period of year, developed a loan policy plan with five key loans, and the players are at peak age. And of course, in peak age, you're able to sustain the high-intensity game scenarios in which there are some suggestions that the Rams are unable to cope, particularly around the hour mark. Now, what's also interesting then, guys, is that we then look at that actually from a... There are a number of things around the ownership. I think if we're to say if Derby succeed or fail, it's a collective responsibility, and that includes David Clowes. So David's responsible as the owner. You could one look at how did he purchase the club. There's some suggestions he overpaid. So in doing that, was it an emotive purchase? And in doing that, therefore, then are his decisions, maybe what's made him a successful businessman, actually based on an emotional element around the creation of a fan. He then maintained that the chief executive in Stephen Pearce, and those two guys would be the main responsible individuals for the creation of the club culture. What's then interesting, if we go off at a slight tangent, then mid-season, not mid-season, quarter-season, we changed direction by the introduction of Paul Warren. And arguably, subconsciously, what that said to the fans was, we're going for promotion. Why? Because Paul was brought in in terms of being viewed, if you like, as having more experience, more gravitas, more knowledge of League One to get the team out of the division. So therefore, I think that there's been an upswell maybe from a public 
perception that actually this season is actually the season where we would be expecting to maybe go for. Yeah. Let's take that on then, if you like, into the slump busting that you asked. So, you know, I, I, I think it's important to build a picture, guys. So if you look at, you know, other teams slumping, I guess there's two experiences I've had. One you're going to love because one's the Forest and one, obviously, <laughs> well, you're going to love even more because it's Derby and they got up. Yeah. So if we look at, for example, when I was at Forest in 2010, we'd gone 18 months without a home defeat. Um, you know, and as you'll know, you'll remember Billy Davis. He he, he really could create a, a siege mentality, at the, you know, at, at both at Pride Park and at the City Ground. So we'd we'd gone 18 months on being at home. We lost uh, against the runner play to Hull City, um, which was a bit of a pain to me coming from Hull. Um, and if, when we look at the KPIs or the pro zone stats in there, there's I've got the report in my drawer actually that you look at and you go, how did we lose that game? What then happened was we went on a six-game slump and we, we lost to Hull, we lost to Sheffield United, we drew at Donny, we lost at Swansea 3-2, which proved to be a dress rehearsal for the playoffs. We lost 4-1 at Leeds, 4-3 at home to Reading. And then we also lost 2-1 at Norwich, which I referred to on the pre-game show with Mark Edworthy. Because that night when we went to Norwich, you could feel they were going up. And everybody, they had this sense of belonging, stewards, receptionists, Catering staff, you're like, oh, these guys, this, this club's going some way. When, you know, the ground and the atmosphere was just electric. What we then did was we came good. We won 5-1 against Scunny uh, and sent them down. And then we won the last game live on Sky, which I remember really well. We battered Palace 3-0 and then we jumped into the playoffs. Uh, and then the irony was then we obviously then lost to Swansea. I'll come back to that because there's a, there's a key variable with the Swansea situation, which I think strongly links to Derby County. So I'll come back to that one. So part of that thought, Guy. The other one, um, which, you know, not to take the listeners off your show, but if we go to the pre-game build-up with Mark Edworthy at the Plymouth, Eddie and I spoke about the season when Derby got up. So you probably remember Derby in the top two, going for automatic and classic Billy slumps. <laughs> Lost to Birmingham. Um, let me just flick, flick through my notes. I'm just trying to remember what happened. I think we they won two out of six again. So I think they won a home game. And, and there was a clear slump. Now, what then happened was, is we jumped back in behind the scenes. So I was doing the analysis. So like when Paul Warren started, as an example, we beat Cambridge and Cambridge was seventh. Well, of course, now things have, you know, all the data points, squad infrastructure, depth of the squad, the way you coach, training. So around that, of course, what, what Derby really benefited from in the season that they got up, and Eddie spoke about it, was not so much, if you like, the coaching acumen of Billy Davis and his coaching staff, it was the character of the group. So within the group, there was you, you had a spine running all the way through. Stephen Bywater, strong character. All the centre halves were strong characters, whether it was Dean Leacock, Michael Johnson, uh, Darren Moore. You know, you had, you had strong characters, individual Matt Oakley in the middle of the pitch. And then you then had Steve Howard up front. So his spine had strong personalities and characters. And there was there was at certain times where it was the strength of the players and their collective spirit was enough to then galvanise them to pull them through. And invariably, then when we went into the playoffs, I'm sure you remember the night at, at home to Southampton. I mean, the stadium was just, it's probably the best atmosphere. I've got, in fact, got boogs bumps thinking about it now. It was the very best atmosphere I could ever recall really at Pride Park and invariably it was one of those live dramas really with the the site, you know, the way that that game ebbed and flowed. But at Wembley, we knew that 
we wouldn't have more possession than West Brom. You knew Kumas was going to win the game. Of course, he rattled the bar. But we also knew that they had some blind spots, You know, particularly in terms of the kick down Eddie's side. They were vulnerable down the left-hand side and they were poor at defending crosses. And here, Presto, that was exactly the way that the team won the game. So, invariably... That was a good show, wasn't it, chaps? That was a quick hour. Here you go, mate. I'm reminiscing. I'm reminiscing. Yeah, so invariably, you know, um, where we are with, I guess, eight games to go at the point when I guess you're going to release this show, the season's not over. Um, and it's obviously around how how Paul manages his immediate cohort in, around him, if you like, and his and the culture at Moore Farm, but that will also be enwrapped, if you like, around the whole culture around Derby County in terms of how they'll actually maybe turn that corner and still make this a successful season on the pitch. I just sort of on a sub-question on that then, so I look at examples like Aston Villa when they got promoted through the playoffs, when they had that incredible run towards the end of the season, where I think, if I remember rightly, there were language in round 10th and 11th and I think they won something like seven out of ten under Dean Smith and yeah. and flew up the up the table they look at other clubs who have been in and around their top two or three and then ultimately and I could example Steve McLaren Derby County which I believe was 2016 when we got beat by Reading we had a terrible slump so what was the difference with those two mindsets what do you think the key is for a club that goes an incredible run with 10 to go that gets them in there and ultimately um, their momentum seeks them home compared to a club that's all of a sudden transitions into a downward spiral. Well, there's a, there's a psychology of momentum, which is actually well studied. So on Friday, obviously with Tom Rushby, we were talking about tennis in particular, lots of studies around, you know, tennis momentum. And, and you'll know yourself, Chris, even with basketball, you know, around that aspect of maintaining particular pressure, defensive pressure. So around that, I would suggest at times, you know, the, the other one that you didn't mention, of course, was Nottingham Forest with the run that Steve Cooper put on. And of course, all of those examples of the teams that came together created momentum. Now, it can be through design or it can be through luck. Um, and invariably, you know, and if you've been lucky, you just let it run. You become superstitious. You put on the, your lucky shirt, your lucky pants, your lucky socks. You put your boots on in a different way. So there is that variable around being superstitious. But actually, you know, from a coaching space, and I'm talking to both of you with your experiences in rugby and with basketball, you know, as performance specialists, you'd be looking at ways around around doing that. And ultimately, for me, it would come out of consistent behaviours. So by the way we train, the way we behave around the training ground, you know, punctuality, discipline, sticking to the method and the process, although all coaches will claim that, which is actually a lot of rubbish. Um, you know, but it actually sticking to that methodology that actually eventually, because what you're attempting to do is you're trying to build cohesion and coherence so the players hit a wavelength. One thing I've mentioned a lot this season, of course, is the fragility of confidence, and we experienced that at Forest. So Rob Earnshaw in the season that we didn't do, it only scored nine goals. Lewis McGugan scored 13 from midfield. And it, it was quite prevalent, I think, with Ernie's player because he'd have, when he was scoring, he'd have one, he'd just finish one touch. But then when he lost his company, he'd be having two touches. And that, of course, creates that debate then around James Collins, Lewis Dobbin, and their potency. Because being a training ground international and being a top performer, you know, particularly away from home, are two completely different psychological variables. So there's a number of elements. And of course, it's also then, if you like, the perception of success. 
or even the perception of failure. Dave Aldred, I've worked with him, who's done a lot of work with um, rugby union goal kickers and rugby league goal kickers. I worked with him with Kevin Simfield. So it'd be all around that perception. So is the, you know, Sheffield Wednesday's slumping at the moment, which is quite interesting with their, their two defeats when the prize is in their hands. And again, Chris, you know, I'm sure you know, there's, there's a psychology of, of, of almost like a fear of success. You know, what happens if I go up? Well, if I go up, I might get I might get very redundant. They're going to get better players. Look what's happened at Forest. They get up and none of the players that are in the promotion squad are in the in the first eleven, or very very few of them. So you get this subconscious driver that comes around it. So ultimately, you know, look at what we're debating and discussing now is there's a pressure put on Derby County. Whereas if Wickham get in, Peterborough get in, Portsmouth get in, they'll all view it as a bonus. So they're playing, if you like, without that perception of pressure. And that's exactly what Steve Cooper created on that run that Nottingham Forest went on last season. So do you think Derby, uh, is that what they're doing at the minute? They're cracking under the pressure? Because ultimately we were flying 15, 16 games unbeaten. And I think me and Chris pinpointed it on Monday's show that since West Ham game, since we lost 2-0 against West Ham, it's not quite been the same. Is it? Is it? A, is it a factor of okay? We've forgotten how to lose, and now it's sort of dented our confidence, and we just don't know how to sort of regain that form again. Right. So, right. Put your LA Lakers best on and your Leicester Tigers shirts on. Go back to being players. So, I think one of the things that we'd definitely say is that on the field of play, that's all you think about. Right. You're immersed in the game. Um. For the most part, there are some examples where players have been distracted and, and there's some, some evidence in the site literature around that. But let's say that the pace of the game is too quick, particularly in League One, particularly if when we play Ipswich. And I actually had a chat with Max Bird. It was on air, actually, on Radio Derby around how he's found the difference between Championship and League One. Even the West Ham game was discussed. So when you're in, when you're in peak performance, you haven't got time to think about anything else other than the game. So what you've described there, actually, there could be a, a psychological go-to of when we concede around the, the hour mark is here we go again. And what was interesting, when I, I did some work as a consultant years ago at Shrewsbury, I was full-time with Leeds Rhinos, and Shrewsbury got relegated that season at the Football League. And with 10, 11, 10, 11 games to go, it was interesting watching them play because um, at nil-nil, they didn't know how to play. Their psychological norm was how to play from one-nil down. It was almost that once they conceded, like, oh, we know what we're doing now. We're back to chasing the game. And we can, we're can we back to that psychological momentum. So they hadn't developed that mindset. And it was a useful experience for me, very, you know, my early stage of my career, because I was working with Leeds Rhinos where we got to the Challenge Cup final and second in the league. So the, the performance parameters was much different, maybe with a club that was actually avoiding to playing to avoid uh, a situation or a scenario. So I think that's on the field of play. I think off the field of play, there's a big cultural issue. Um, and, and I think if you look at what's, obviously, as you know, I'm studying the transfer market. So what's happened in this last four or five days alone, National League deadline windows closed. So the, the movement of permanent deals has now subsided. Liam Thompson, of course, has gone out on loan. Let's park him because I'd like to come back to Liam in terms of the, the, the way that he's been managed. So Liam's gone out on loan, but we've seen still signings of free agents. So Anthony Grant's gone to Crawley. We've seen 35, 36-year-olds getting picked up as free agents. None have gone into League One and none will be suited to Derby. So we've got to be fair and rounded with that. But what's also happening are contract renewals. And when we talk about contract renewals, Johnny Owson signed a new deal at Middlesbrough, captain. Barry Bannon signed a new deal at Sheffield Wednesday, captain. Best player in League One, right? 
Agreed. We haven't had a single contract when you look at Derby County. Mm. Why not? Yeah, well. So, question, so my right? point being is now, from a psychological point of view, we've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Get your textbooks out, chaps. Um, <laughs> when our number one prevalence of in, in in a psychological factor is is security, and footballers are no different. The seat jog security. So there are a large number of players now that are out of contract going into April. And so there's almost a subconscious, here we go again, what, another administration? What, I'm going to be out of contract? Again, I've got to find another employer. Gaffer, what's happening next season? Well, we'll see what happens at the end of the year. <laughs> here we go. Now, let's go back to the slump that you asked me at the start of the show. When we got uh, when we didn't make it with Forest, the only people that were in tears at full time at Swansea were the staff. The majority of the Forest players had signed prenups elsewhere. McKenna had a bowler, went to Hull City. Tyson, did Tyson go to Forest that year? Uh, to Derby that year. So he did, what, he did, yeah. So what happened is the club hadn't committed to them, so you're asking them to commit to you. Now that then goes back to the culture that's created, if you like, from your, from your senior leadership team, as well as whether Paul wanted to, or the, they may be saying, right, you know, to Paul, you've got your budget, mate, you go and sign your players. If he's not showing the faith in those players, he's not going to get that back. So yeah. this, is, this is where it's all interlinked. We can't just shout at the tactics. Yes, you're on the field of play, there are some elements around the way that we play, like you described, maybe the West Ham game, certainly our tactical approach. But they, they, you know, and I know we're going to come on to marginal gains, but for me, some of the stronger cultural forces around, actually, there are a number of players at Derby County at this moment in time that actually are coming out of contract and therefore that will definitely be on their mind. And I, I tell you for something for sure, having been head of recruitment, it will definitely be on the head of recruitment. Uh, sorry, the, uh, the, the, the the player's agent's minds. He wants does paying it, and he only that, gets twice a year to do it. Does that come into play, Darren, in January then? Would you say, because obviously Paul got the manager of the month award in January and then all of a sudden come February when he got awarded it, our slump started. And... It did, but it was also around the appointments of Glyn Chamberlain in the head of recruitment and Ross Burberry coming in. So that, so it was, it's not, it's not, so that, so now you've had a change. Now what's interesting, the, the scouting role and the head of performance roles weren't advertised. So they were, but they were, so they were, they were brought in through informal networks and the club made the choice to bring the Oxford United guy in after the window. And Paul went into the press and said, didn't he? He openly said that he wasn't bringing players unless they were better than what they got. Now, invariably, what they did was Glyn Chamberlain was 17th in League Two with Crew, so he's likely to have been recruiting in under-21s football. Um, you know, so invariably, you point your, the, 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 they've got the two players that, from the way you're pointing your feet. So one could argue some of the other clubs, Aidan Flint went, you know, from Stoke to Sheffield Wednesday. You know, so there were some championship players dropping in where they can be coming out of contracts, surplus to requirements, getting get them off the wage bill, no loan fees. Uh, you know, I've got lots of examples of those sort of things. And in the end, what we've done is we've ended up taking first loans and, and calculated risk and that those young players were good enough to come up. So so, so there is that there is that, jan that January window, that January period, you know, was and is a significant period. And as we saw when you talked about... Um, you know, the Steve McLaren era, it was also that period when they brought um, uh, Blackman into the squad that everything changed as well. So that's, you know, are we learning from history? Then then possibly not. It's interesting, actually, that you've sort of flipped what I said 
on, on Monday, I had a bit of a rant and said, if, if the players don't want to be here, then fine, don't, let's go. But you've sort of flipped it and said, well, actually, maybe the players do want to be here, but they don't know if they are going to be here. Yeah, it, the relationship's reciprocal. Yeah. So this collective responsibility is about, I would talk about from like the relationships. So what what's really important now is relationships. So again, if we, t- if we speak honestly, um, and you know, I, I try to be evidence-based, Paul Warren claimed very early in his press, it was about relationships. He wanted WhatsApp groups with the players. He wanted this connection. He told him he was going to be messaging him on night times and that, you know, he wanted to build this rapport and this consistency. So that works both ways, right? So when he's gone into the press and said, Liam Thompson's the next man up, and then that doesn't happen, and then he's then put out on loan, that 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 will actually send ripples through the dressing room. Although Liam's a secondary player, and it would have been tough for him week in week out sitting there on the bench knowing he's not going to get on. So I think that that's that's then where you're then looking for these consistencies in relationships. So yeah, all I can understand you put your, your point, Simon, because when you when we're sitting in the stand, that's what you see. You see face value. I think the other element then, of course, is that emotional intelligence. So when you bring like, and I I experienced this at Coventry when Mickey Adams brought Richard Shaw off before half-time at Crewe, game over. He'd lost the dressing room that 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 game. Not only did we lose the match, he lost the dressing room. You could see, and he talked about, Paul actually talked about eye contact with players. From then on in, every team talk Mickey Adams gave, there was a glaze on the players' eyes. Because what he'd done was he'd brought off, the, like Richard Shaw, you know, a, a club legend. He'd had his uh, testimonial against Celtic. You know, he was highly respected. For the sake of two minutes, you know what was the difference going to make in that game there? You know, and then he could have then, even if it's, he could have had, he could have words in 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 private between the four walls, man to man on a Monday morning, no problem. But what he did was he brought Connor Hurrian off, you know, one of our you know most uh, marquee standard players, if you like, two minutes before half time, and clearly he wasn't injured when we saw the way that he ran off the field to play. So, you know, again. It'd be interesting to have that discussion with Paul, you know, he's, and this is his step change now coming out of Rotherham, the amount of detail and scrutiny that Derby County put on their team, even just like, you know, with Eric Steele and arguably myself contributing at Radio Derby, with respect, it's not the third club on BBC Radio Sheffield. No, that's true. I mean, it is it is an interesting point. Obviously, I mean, Chris just spoke about Liam Thompson. He thinks that's him done now. That's why he's been sent out. Would would you agree with that? Be... Possibly again, it would be speculative. I think yeah. that you know I couldn't put my my branding being speculative. I've spoken a lot though about young players, and um, you know, so there is a KPI from Liverpool, Julian Ward, who was the loans manager at the time. You know, used to kind of like say for Liverpool, you know, by the age of twenty, they need to have played a hundred games. Liam's miles off that, miles off it, and that's what I've spoken quite passionately because that was me. I was the young YTS at Hull City. You know, we were in the reserve team. I was getting men's football. We played on a Saturday, Saturday league football. Um, we we played in the youth team league, played to win. And then all of a sudden, uh, Colin Appleton came in and just signed a whole load of non-league players and banged them all in the reserves. So that, that became my DNA, my passion around young player development, of course, as well as having a four years at Derby. So Tuggy, Tom Muddleston, Chris Riggert, the, the, you know, Adam Murray, Marvin Robinson, Lee Camp, Lee Grant, you know, what a list, Lee Holmes, 
they all came through through that generation between 98 and 2002. Why? Because the pathway wasn't blocked and two, there was given opportunity. Admittedly, it was in a first team group that was in a, a difficult period of time, you know, with that transition where Jim Jim had left mm. and John Gregory and Colin Todd, and we had this rapid change in managers. But this is also a similar era, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what we've gone and done is we've brought Harvey White on loan, who's not played. You know, so in some respects, the debate and argument would be, would we have been better to run with Liam Thompson as that covering centre midfielder and put some money into a striker? Because Willis Sula went back on the 4th of January. So they had the whole of the January window to bring that replacement striker in and they didn't. Just, yeah. just a question then. Oh, Sorry, Simon. Just carry on with Liam Thompson while we're on uh, Liam. Scunthorpe are fighting for their lives in National League. Surely that's not a good environment for a young lad who's already struggling with confidence, understanding where his position is with his with his parent club. How would that uh, well, help I, his mindset? Uh, well, I've said on air, I didn't I didn't think he'd get. I mean, I I spent last season I was supporting Grimsby Town with their recruitment piece, you know, getting out of the the national league. The national league is brutal, and I actually said on again on Radio Derby that Liam wouldn't get Notts County's team. He wouldn't get in Wrexham's team with respect. And what we've got, we haven't, we haven't got a meritocracy across League One, League Two and National League. You know, we've seen that with Stockport this season. They're in the playoffs in League Two. If they get up, crowd size, wages. In fact, I know some of the wages are what Stockport are paying and they're comparable to Derby. So actually what you've got is you've got, a, Wrexham certainly are. <laughs> so yeah, what no you've doubt. got is you've actually, you haven't got it. You haven't got a meritocratic environment in League One, League Two and National League. So, with respect, the games that Derby do win away from home against teams with crowds of 3,000 and less, for the most part. And then that's the same then when you go into League Two. You've got teams at the bottom, Walsall, Crawley, they're existential clubs, can they stay up? Whereas in National League, Chesterfield, um, you know, Wrexham, Notts County, I mean, not, I mean, the crowds at Notts County are incredible. So, therefore, with respect, Liam's, uh, Liam wouldn't go in and get into any of those sides What's also could have happened, which, again, I'm only being speculative and it's important to be speculative, could just be born out of the network. There's the former Ilkeston Town owner that's just got on the phone to somebody at Derby and said, have you got someone? Can we have someone? And they might not have even been very specific. Or even Liam's agents generated the move. And that then would be an issue around the player development, welfare and care around the pathway. Because for all the money you put into young players between 6 and 16, it's then the polishing the diamonds around actually getting your players off. And what is clearly missed here at the moment in time is actually gaining senior competition experience, which I know you'll both know from your other sporting experiences. At 19, I was you know playing for Burton Albion's first team. Gary Rowett made his debut at the age of 17. So they're into men's football at very, very young ages. You know, admitted I was semi-professional, so I'm not going to over-embellish my, my playing career. But when we look, it then frustrates me when I see, particularly when we look at the loans market, the loans market overall is failing. Last season, players went on loan and got on average about eight games. So that would be 10 years before they got to 80 games and they need to get to 100 games before the 2021. So again, I would say that that's something that that's, that's, that's a gap, a cultural gap at Derby at the minute in terms of that 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 management of, co of competition experience in particular, which I think is crucial for a young player to be able to come through. And that's that's one thing that worries me about a player that both me and Chris highly admire, and that's Jake uh, uh, Jake Rooney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and Paul Paul Ward. I mean, there was that 
because he played at Oxford, assisted for the goal, great team goal, great ball into the box, then doesn't make the bench. Now, I, Ed Dawes set me straight and said, well, there was actually been a, a clear statement from Paul Warren. He'd either play or he'd never be on the bench. So you go, OK. But around, you know, are we playing the long game? This is, this is the, I guess, the paradox of Derby County. Are we playing the long game? So if we are, you know, Cybulski, um, Gruel Pollard, uh, you know, Bardell, some of those boys, they're, you know, in my opinion, they're at great risk of, of not making the grade where, they, you know, maybe 12, 18 months ago, they were gaining good, good experiences and, they, they, you know, they had opportunities to ramp. You then, like you say, you then got Liam Thompson, you've got players on the edges, Jake Rooney. If we're playing the long game, they need to go out on loan. Paul rightly could turn around and go, I can't, I need, I need, I need them in the group, I need them in the building. And and I would understand that, but we did have that January window where then he could have maybe attempt to wheel and deal around certain certain, certain opportunities for the younger players. Yeah, how, I did think how... there's a trick there. In that January window, I, I do feel that a trick was missed massively when, yeah, granted, we haven't really got a budget, if one at all, but surely we could have done a little bit of fishing. We got a new head of recruitment in and yeah, we brought in, no disrespect to him, but Harvey White and Tony, and, and Tony Springer, neither who yeah. were... <laughs> Yeah, but it starts before then, Simon. So Derby had less time than everybody else for the July window, granted, because of the administration. And there were much more issues about keeping the lights on, let alone, you know, some of that player. So I get that. But once we knew the club was secure, once the transfer window closed, everybody's equal. We've all got from the 1st of September. You know, the club went through the recruitment process in October for the head of recruitment role. So, so actually, that that's that's you know, we can't blame budget because, like everybody else, you've got to shuffle your pack. And and again, going back to my Forest experience, when we went into Forest, McCleary and Tyson were the best two players when we started. They couldn't keep pace with the step change of recruitment. You know, we brought Gunter in, we brought um, uh, Nicky Shorey in, we brought some uh, Aaron Ramsey come in, and suddenly the standards of the group went from there. And up, up a notch, and that's that's just natural. That's just they're in the talent industry. That's the talent cycle, and you need that succession planning around how do you go and get something a little bit better. You know, Birmingham, we can reflect of our average wage spend was four grand a week. So what we did was we moved three or four of the four grands a week on, and then put put it into sixteen grand a week and create a bit more of a hierarchy so that we could go and get better skills and qualities. Because ultimately, with respect in football, you do get what you pay for, like you do in all other industry sectors. So how you shuffle your budget up goes back to the very start of the window. With respect, if you like, we've got a novice owner, so therefore he's di- he's now being guided by his chief executive and his head coach at the time in terms of saying right. Thanks very much for the budget. This is how we would recommend that we sent we would spend it, and, and we would do. I was doing it live on air and radio dab at the time, checking and challenging, and going, "We haven't got any twenty-four year olds, no twenty-fives, no twenty-sixes, no twenty-sevens." And it continued. Another one had come in. Chester had come in. McGoldrick had come in. Collins had come in, and you kind of like go, "Well, hang on a minute." You, what would suggest there? Of course, those players tend to want higher wages. So invariably, you're putting all your budget on that top end, knowing that you, if you're going to be successful, you're going to have a fifty-three, fifty-five game season. And therefore, you need you need those legs in and around it within the building. On that on that subject, then, so looking at individual players, not necessarily with Derby County as we are now. When you get this analogy of a manager comes in, it's not his squad. 
I'm, I'm sorry, don't I don't buy that, and I don't buy that for many reasons. And I've been in professional basketball going back into the nineties, and I and I worked with and under four or five different coaches, and they all had different mindsets and different recruiting. I look at examples away from Derby where a manager's gone in again with this, it's not his squad, and done very, very well. Jamie Carrick at Borough, I look at this season. Roy Keane back in the days of Sunderland. What? Yep. Paul Warren has openly said that he wanted to sign Didsy. He wanted to sign Collins. He wanted to sign um, Brihan. He's got them now. What? What's your take on this? It's not his squad excuse because I know that we're in admin a year ago, and I understand people on the talk and on Monday were going back to the days of doom and gloom last year. But a, a lot happens in twelve months, and I sort of wanted to ask you. A good coach surely has an understanding before he takes the role of what he's going to be have to work with for for the embargo and ultimately the restrictions he's under. Yeah. So was was he was he interviewed? Was I he have... interviewed? Okay. Was there must have been a discussion, right? So either they've become David Clowes and Stephen, if you like, have become emotionally. It's like buying a pair of shoes, right? You go in a shopping centre, you look at the shoes, you walk walk around twice and go back and get the shoes that you wanted. So it's it's the psychology of a purchase. So if if they've got that, we want Paul Warren, then invariably then they maybe not have ha- have asked those critical questions because if it was if it was an advertised role and there was a you know a a, stru- a structured interview scheme, you would say to all candidates, looking at our squad, knowing the the financial restraints and restrictions how would you get the best out of this group that would be a, and then, then then the best candidate would have answered that and gone how to do a b c d and e right so uh, working on that principle then that that i i would support your view then chris because ultimately he would have answered that question and also then on day one he would have said to the lads let's go come on we're all in this together now, if he's then come out, and I, I actually challenged Radio Derby guys about this, about where's it, where's it come from that they're not Paul Warren's players? Because, again, if Paul's come and said that, either on the record or off the record, if Paul said that, what he's actually saying to the players is, you're not good enough and I don't want you. And it goes, we're going back full circle now around that job security element because they'll be looking at the door. They're not bothered about where Derby finished. They're thinking, where am I going to work next season? It's human nature, and you can't criticise players for that. Because actually, in the transfer market, there's never a permanent deal. I know the press report it. The fixed-term contracts, you're a seasonal worker. So therefore, the players... So so if that's come out... I, so I would support that view, Chris, that you cannot, you cannot d- disown, if you like, the group of players that you're expected to lead. And ultimately, with eight games of the season to go, and we are in sport where there can be a lucky bounce, there can be a lucky refereeing decision. Yes, you're in the realms of randomness, but there's still a chance. And until it's mathematically impossible, therefore then, as you both know, there are strong links, which was my my, my master's thesis, between team spirit and successful winning performance. So therefore, foster team spirit. So what would you do? We're all in this together, lads. And we then start working around the group ownership and the ways and means of actually how, how we can work collectively to, to achieve something bigger and greater than what you could achieve on your own. And this was my point um, regarding the Cheltenham thing, going to Cheltenham. Why why would a team need a team bonding session with 10 games to go? Well, 
Chris, you'll, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Chris on this one. Is if we look at the Michael Jordan series, uh, Dennis Rodman was sent off. Just one player was sent off. You need a breather. Off you go. Come back in a couple of weeks. Go and do what you need to do. Go and let your hair down. But that wasn't done as a collective element. And that would be, if you like, the art and the management of the head coach with an individual. So if there was one or two that probably felt that they needed to let off a little bit of steam, they don't have the international breaks and all the various other things. What we do know is that there was a, there was a top six rival. What I do know, there was a top six rival who pulled the lads into the changing room and went, right, no, 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 Cheltenham. Got 10 games left. The prize is too great. Can't afford to take our eye off the prize. And and, and you both know, and we all know that you make sacrifice. I'm do I'm training for Leeds Marathon at the minute. I'm off the ale. So I'm making a sacrifice as an amateur athlete. And then at least then if I don't make my time, I've been the best version of myself. Because the issue you've then got is that we, we, we wear off it. Uh, the coherence, the passing, the touch, the decision-making, Aaron's overrunning it. Long diags were running out of play. You could just tell something wasn't quite round with the heartbeat of, of the team. And, that, and that's high-performance sport. Because Don pushed back and said, well, you know, you know, there's examples of, you know, Neil Warnock's teams doing this in the past. Yeah, that was in the past. And if Fleetwood haven't done it, we've destroyed our sleep cycle. We've just done what? You know, a five-hour trip back from Plymouth, which the, the team bus travelled back on the, on the night of the match. We stayed down as broadcasters so that we could travel back fresh in the in the morning. You've already paid for the hotel. And as a fitness coach, I would have thought Paul would have been more on that side of the argument rather than allowing the lads to get back to, at three in the morning then jump in the car and then driving another hour disturbing their sleep cycle. Because you're moving now into the realms of marginal gains. And invariably... You know, when you're up against Ipswich, when you're up against Sheffield Wednesday in particular, you've got teams with similar budgets, similar club infrastructures. So it could be those finite differences that could be just the thing that tips you over on the edge. And then have your party, right, at the end of the season. Well, this is it. This Was this what the thought would it would be best to sort of get to the end of the season first, then celebrate, rather than doing it 10 games to go? It just yeah. it just didn't didn't make sense. Now, I think there's there's two things with this because I, I you know to, let's let's you know because I don't want to feel like we're because I'm trying to be fair and rounded with my comments and obviously you, I'm using academic and and, and uh, personal experience to to make my examples. Let's put ourselves in the seat of Paul Warren. So if if the, if the lads come to him and say Gaffer, can we go? If I was, I'd be gutted. Because because what he can't because he could turn around and say no, but then what he's then doing is it's almost creating a punishment culture, you know. He, his you know, and, and this is the, you know I'm dealing with Gen Z at the moment, so they like this ownership, they like this collaboration, they like likes, they like you know community. So it's it's a bit different maybe to the 80s and the 90s where the manager was the gaffer and he set the tone and he's you know the, he set the rules and we all followed. So we are in a completely different generation. So to be fair to Paul. Paul, Paul might have been gutted himself, so he's now in this. He's now got this rock and hard place, right? Okay, lads, you can go. Hey, brilliant, we're off, lads. He's, you know, and he runs them on the Tuesday before they get on the bus, and then and off we go down, and they have a day out. They, they, so there's that side, or he might have even said, "Go down and don't have a drink." They might not have even had a drink, but now they've created the metaphor for us all to hammer them with it. So it's a no-win situation. The other element then would have been post Fleetwood. Right, lads, I want a reaction. You owe me. And I'm sure, you know, Chris, you've probably had that in your basketball setup. All right, I'll give you I'll give you a little bit of candy there. Off you go. You owe me now. But again, we didn't get that reaction at Peterborough. 
and what we discussed earlier in the show is about this this precious commodity of momentum because what what's actually then happened is it's like a heartbeat it's in your hand you've got to keep this momentum going you've got to be gentle with it you've got to keep it just touching like a spinning wheel and you've got to look after it you've got to care for it and invariably you know that momentum it's it's it, it's been another force that's, that's that's acted in a disruptive manner and of course it's you know again it's further destroyed that momentum and they're all inter interlinked. Loss of momentum equals a loss in team spirit. Loss in team spirit equals a loss in belief that we can collectively achieve. We get to the hour mark again, and what happens? Peter will go and score. And it makes sense again with what you're saying regarding because I think after the Fleetwood game, he sort of not called him out as such in the media, um, but he wasn't as is normal. Yeah, it was an alright performance, and I felt again against Peterborough, he switched back to type and praised them. Oh, it was a great performance, a lot better. They gave me a reaction. Yeah, but they gave you a reaction for 45 minutes, not 90 minutes. And just listening to to him saying, I think there, there was there was times of saying, you know, if we if we go up, we go up, if we don't, we don't, we, we, we rebuild again. Um, there was, and then he's saying, I just need to find what that missing thing is. What he thinks he knows it is, but he can't tell us. So I think he's trying to get his words right. So the players are trying to get, not necessarily get back on side, but letting them know that he still believes in it, that he still believes in them. Yeah, I think there's a number of things with it. I mean, sometimes, and he has mentioned it a couple of times, what's said in the dressing room should stay in the dressing room, and I would respect that. He doesn't owe it to us to come into the press and say, this is what I've told them. And I think at times, Paul's possibly been a bit touched too transparent with some of the things that he's revealed to us, which is great as a, as a fan and as a Derby County follower, but then your opposition's also listening too. If we go back to Pat Riley, Chris, Pat Riley in his book, The Winner Within, he talks about thunderbolts. And you can go after, he would claim you can only go after your group three times. So after the Plymouth game, he's used one of his thunderbolts. He called it shooting from the hip. So it's how many rollickings can you go after it? Now, that, now look, that's not, that's not academically studied, but it was a good insight in the early 90s about the number of rollickings you could go out and give your players. So if he's, if he's done it after Plymouth, he's played one of his cards. If he goes and does it again after Fleetwood, he's running the risk now of just, you know, looking at players with their, just looking at the feet. And then eventually, like I described in an early scenario at Coventry, you're running the risk of the shutters coming down because they're not going to listen. So I think what 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 what, what the, mod the modality is now, it's about solution. It's about being solution focused. It's finding that, that, that solution, that answer. So I think, Simon, to be fair to Paul, he's probably publicly thought, right, I can't go after my players again publicly. I've got to come out and be seen to be supporting them. Um, but ultimately, I, th I think what he's going to have to think about is, is, you know, that degree of, you know, can we spring a surprise? Is there a tactical shape that he needs to maybe think about? Is there, a, you know, I think, again, it, um, you know, for me, our tactical style of play is a little bit predictable. We don't seem to have a plan B. Billy Davis, we would play with diamonds. We would play with, mid, you know, adjunct midfield fours, one loose, two wide players, one sits, one pushes, you know, number 10 in behind. So we worked on all these scenarios within 11 v 11, but we seem to be very much this 4-2-3-1 at the moment, you know, in and around kind of like, right, and then we just change the players and we're just trying to crack that nut in the same way, which, of course, in opposition makes it easier to predict um, you know what's coming with the style of play when you when you're ready to line up against Derby County. It's in, it's interesting you talk about the Thunderbolts. Um, I had the pleasure of working one year with a, a coach called Bob Donnell Jr., whose dad's a very famous NCAA uh, coach okay. back in the eighties, and he used the Thunderbolt analogy as well. 
from Pat Riley. Um, and I remember he used his third at Milton Keynes uh, when we were away at Milton Keynes Lions and he, he pulled me out of the change room and he said to me, right, Chris, I can't bollock these guys because I've already given them three kicks up the arse. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw a table at you. <laughs> he says, I'll miss you, I promise you. I will miss you. And did he? No. <laughs> <laughs> he nearly, nearly broke my ankle. But basically, he showed his anger by something that was irrelevant to the tactics actually on the basketball court. It didn't It didn't work because they put me in hospital for the evening and lost my 20. But what? <laughs> but basically, I, I see a point of view. My my biggest concern with what you're saying is is, is body language. I looked at Conor Hurrihan's body language when the first goal went in against Peterborough. And I'll be honest with you, I was disgusted because this is a gentleman who's... 31, 32, been there, done it, and should be someone that the youngsters should look up to and go, Connor, what do we do now? Where where do we change this mentality? And as soon as that goal went in, and me and Simon spoke about this this week, he turned around and berated anyone near him. And I thought, actually, he was probably at fault for the first phase of that yeah. goal. And I thought to myself, what kind of reaction is he going to get from lads who clearly are suffering with conscience or mindset changes, how, how do you overcome that as a, as a, as a coach, Darren? How, what well, do you, you say to that you've just, senior? You've just, yeah, you've described the, fr the frustration-aggression hypothesis there. So let's get the tech book back out, chaps. So, like again, so let, let's go back when Connor was dragged. So what's his outlet? Um, so, you know, with respect, is you know, it when <laughs> one... Connor potentially, I, don't, I haven't got the data. One, Connor could be an athletic decline. So I, I I know this. I'm trying to cash checks. My body really can't deliver on. My mind my mind can do it, but my body can't. But he can still see the pictures. He can see the patterns of play. And he's frustrated around the younger players that haven't got those solutions. I remember sitting in the dugout with Peter Reid at Coventry and really be tearing his hair out. Now, I'm an educationalist, right? I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a coach. So I'm like, well, Gaffer, you need to paint the pictures to him. He's like, well, I can't see it. You're like, well, Gaffer, they're not played in the 86 World Cup like you. not played for England. It's your responsibility to, to nurture and mentor them. You know, so I think there's that element there where you're right. Connor should be in that role about being the, the nurture mentor, right? But the environment might not have been created for that, for him to be allowed to do that. And, and again, I'm only playing devil's advocate. So he might have been so just get on with your job, mate. All I'm asking you to do is get on with your job. So therefore, that frustration is naturally going to come out. Those frustration behaviours are actually born out of an environment because if it was maybe in Villa's first team and that happened, maybe the culture was different that allows him to behave in a different way. So that that would be one a, a synopsis of actually why those behaviours are at face value. Absolutely, you, we need leaders, and that invariably is what the fans see. But in the end, he could just take on the role as being a social actor. He might not mean it. And again, there's other studies around, you know, like sociological behaviours around actually some of those those elements. So and ultimately, guys, leadership's about action. So it's not about who rants and raves the most, right? So go and get on the ball, go and dictate play, go and turn them. Go and get the ball in the box. Get the ball into Dids' feet. You know, that's for me is the leadership actions, not, you know, giving it the chest-thumping stuff because we can all do that and being the extrovert. That, that, that's, not, that's not leadership in action. Leadership in action is actually, you know, with like, you know, and, and I'm not leveling this at Mendes Lang, but out wide, drop off and get the ball because we can all run onto the full-backs, drop into pockets of space, check your shoulder, be able to receive it, be able to receive it on the half-turn rather than playing it back. And that's that bravery. 
And that's that bravery of coping with playing under pressure. And ultimately, some of that is born out of the environment that's created for them to do it. But again, it's also around those psychological parameters and those forces that are on the team at this moment in time. But the bravery thing is what Paul Warren keeps on going on about. He needs us to be braver. He needs us to take more risks. And we just... How, do, how yeah. does he... As, as, a, as a manager, as a coach, how does he get the players to do that? Right. So, not by talking about it. So, I learned in rugby league, mental toughness isn't created by shouting louder at the lads. It really isn't. And in fact, when I was a team psych... The lads could kill me, <laughs> you know, so with respect, you know, I once played in a grab game, the three of them hit me and <laughs> uh, every ounce of air left my body. And I was like, <laughs> so I, and yet my role as a sports site was about commitment, motivation, um, sacrifice. So it's in the behaviours that you model. So that he needs to model at a degree of bravery, if you like, set scenarios up actually, right? This the scenarios on the field to play so, you know, it could be the scenario mapping. And I know you'll have done this definitely in, in basketball, Chris. Right, we're two up. We're six points up with two minutes to play. Play. So you've got these scenarios. It's, it's not about clear, you know, clear predictive patterns. It's about, you know, what, what could occur and how we deal with how we cope with it. So what you've got is you've got a scenario, right, 60 minutes gone the clock, scores are level. How do we close the game out with 30 minutes? Bang, right. And we work on the patterns and the pictures and actually, and, and also give, give permission to fails, right? So go on, get the ball into his feet in there. I know you're going to have to break the lines, but go forward, be brave. And you paint those pictures. Now, again, I'm not down at Moor Farm, but what I can say typically at this time of the year, what you see an awful lot, if we've got in helicopters and we flew around the country, you'd see a lot of 8v8, V8 possession, a lot of small-sided games, a lot of unopposed finishing, a lot of keeping the lads happy. And if you you know if you're doing that sort of practice and those drills, which you know I know I'm, I'm back to you, Chris. I know in basketball you've got a lot of X's and Y's and patterns of playing scenarios. What you're not doing is you're not creating the patterns in the pictures to help your players go and perform when they're in when it really mounts when when it's under pressure. Yeah, it's I a mean, it's a really good point. Sorry, Sam. No, no. I mean, it's like Paul again when he when he mentions training, it's all off the ball stuff. Yeah, off the ball work. Well, that's fine, but at the minute we're struggling to score, and he says he doesn't want to make it a bigger issue than it than it needs to be. Yeah, so I, 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 everybody's got to flex. Everybody's got to flex. Hurrian's got to flex. If you're saying that there's a uh, there's a disconnect there, Hurrian's got to flex. Paul's got to flex too because we're not Rotherham. So it's all very and actually he runs a risk if he tries to create Derby County into Rotherham because we're not Rotherham. Rotherham is a, is a club with respect that is punching above its weight in the championship in terms of its crowds, its wages, its financial infrastructure. Derby County is a 32,000 stadium, and it's also got a culture and a history, uh, you know, around, you know, being around playoffs, championship playoffs, winning league titles, you, you know, generations beyond me. So you've got a different culture. But what you've got, of course, then is you, you've, the culture of the fan comes in. So they're expecting a brand of football. Now, fans will go with that when you're winning, but they won't go with it when you're not winning. And that's part of Paul. Paul's going to have to flex. And ultimately, that's about him learning about our culture, about the city of Derby, about its fans, about, it, you know, about, you know, the, 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 the way it likes to play, what, what the fans are expected to. Because ultimately, I'm not saying that the customers, but they have a value sensor that they're expecting to see. So this, these off-the-ball behaviours isn't King Cladsey, is it? It isn't, you know, Igor Stimak, is it? You know, it's not, not those players that 
you know, I remember seeing it playing for Derby County and invariably I think that's part of the cultural norm of, of you know, and what David Clowes would have been used to actually over the years of seeing Derby County play week in, week out. Well, one thing I was going to ask you, Darren, um, with your background, and this is something that I've sort of been there in the changing room um, in a basketball game, is is game management reactive or proactive at half-time. So the last three games that we've uh, capitulated, there's been at least two substitutions at half-time that have brought on a different dynamic of both pace, athleticism and and formation fundamentally. And I never see a reaction or or a proactive response or game management from Derby County. Now, my question to you is, is twofold. Number one, should we be reactive or proactive? And number two, of the mindset of the coaches, so you've got four of them that are on his backroom staff, including himself, is there an element where one of those coaches should be looking at the opposition and saying, Gaffer, I think they could bring on Poku. I think they could bring on this guy. At Plymouth, classic example, they, they brought on um, and uh, Tete, Matate, who galvanised Plymouth and changed the game. But I didn't see a proactive reaction by Derby County, Darren. As a, as, a, as a professional coach yourself, what goes to the mindset when you come out of the changing room? Do you talk about predictions or do you talk about all of a sudden you see uh, a change or you see two people about to come on the pitch? Do you go gaffer? That was my, so that was my job at Forest. I had that responsibility and I'd be up in the director's box. We'd watched, we'd watched the opposition play. We knew the situations and the scenarios. And also by being in the director's box, I wasn't emotionally responsible. When you're in the dugout, it is emotive. I mean, you'll know yourselves, you know, when you sort of like down on the pitch side, it, you don't get, you don't get the, the helicopter view and you actually have that disconnect. So you could then map things out. And I would go down about five minutes before half time and draw out what I'd seen you know, in terms of us. And now with the technology, you know, we're having them days, you could get average shape, touches, key players, heat maps, flipping out. You know, the data is immense and there's no excuse. Part of the issue, of course, is if you're doing it on the cheap. So if you're bringing interns in and, and non-high performance specialists, which which is highly prevalent in the moment in the industry, players that, you know, sorry, coaches that haven't got either got airplane background or coach B, a coaching background, or C, a high-performance background, and they're then responsible for doing the analysis. You get what you deserve. I'm sorry. I've got no sympathy for any club that ever does that. And actually, if I was the head coach, I, I would want a high-performance specialist next to me because that you know that becomes the most important parameter at that moment in time. I think let's pick up on your points about being reactive and proactive. So for me, being proactive is in possession, dictate play. So we should be proactive about our style of play in possession, right? Where you guess you're reactive because it's a field invasion game is the, is how they change. But like you've described, you should be predictive. So we would be very, very gullible if they're making tactical substitutions. Of course, invariably what has happened, and it's back to one of Simon's questions at the top of the show around momentum, is that professional sport in all, all sports is a sensing beast. So, you know, what we're all trying to figure at the minute is how do we stop Haaland from scoring? And once defense, one, once one defensive line upset it, you, you'll see the rest of the teams follow. And I think what teams have identified is this physicality, particularly for Derby away from home. We'll get into them. We'll rough them up a little bit. We'll test the referee. 
and invariably they'll go under. And I think that that's something that's, you know, like you described at Plymouth, Mateti come on, he made that crunching tackle, you know, and I, I remember them at the exact moment he was on the edge of edge of the box and you're like, whoa, you know, but it, that's, that's again about breaking up game momentum. There are a number of ways that you can disrupt momentum through substitutions, you know, through a style of play, go and get goal kicks, go and turn them, box them in for throw-ins in their defensive third, kick long, kick short, go around the back seven or eight times, rest in possession, go down injured. How many scenarios have I given you there? So invariably, there are various tactics and strategies within the game that you can utilise to change game momentum. Now, what's interesting around the whole dynamic of Paul Warren and his coaching staff is Richie Barker, because Richie Barker's always in the technical area. And Richie is obviously, maybe appears, if you like, to be that tactician. And around it, Paul seems to have this echo chamber. He doesn't seem to have a disruptor on his staff. He doesn't have somebody that seems to see things differently or check and challenge. And I'm only sitting out of turn from an outsider looking in. If I think back to Howard Wilkinson, Gary Rowett, the best managers I've worked with, Billy Davis, they enjoyed conflict. And I don't mean we'd have a right tear up. We wanted disagreement in a healthy way. You know, well, what do you think? We're like, Christopher, no, what do you mean? What shape are you playing? Why? Because you didn't want that echo chamber. You wanted a disruptive view. You wanted somebody to come up with your blind spot. Well, what they could do at the hour mark, Gaffer, they could, they could maybe just push the fullbacks on a little bit more. They might identify that our fullbacks get forwards a little bit. What they might think, they might try and put two on our centre-halves because we can move Forsyth around a little bit. We can get the ball on the diag over Cashin's head. He need, you know, So you need that disruptive forces because ultimately, Chris, that comes back to your scenario planning. How is it where you know the opposition? If I was playing Derby with twenty minutes to go, how what 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 would I do? And almost study yourself in a third-person neutral position, actually, in terms of trying to come up with those range of solutions. And ultimately, then that becomes your training plan. I, I just I just find that we don't react, Darren. Like we all, we and Simon have spoke about this a couple of times on and off the podcast, where as soon as the bodies came on for. Plymouth, Shrewsbury as well. I could use an example, yeah. uh, and and uh, the posh. Yeah, I, I I didn't see a reaction from Derby yeah. County. I thought if we concede within ten minutes, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't. I don't want to go back to January window, but the, that that's your January window right there, right? Plymouth has scored sixteen off the bench. So part of your macro planning. Let's blame Liam. He's gone. We'll blame Liam. It's all Liam's fault. Liam, you didn't get your recruitment right in January because you need a squad game, particularly now with the with the changes of the substitutions that's now allowed. In 2014 to 2016, I had this proud record at Birmingham. Not I, I contributed to this proud record that we had at Birmingham around... We used the fewest number of players between matches and the fewest number of players within matches. So we kept the group robust. We kept the, the group coherent. You know, and we were able to sort of like keep the, the same team week in, week out. And that came through a well-managed performance management process where everybody contributed from the analysts to the physios to the sports science, all of those elements contributed and, and a very, very good coach in Gary Rowett. What you've now got is you've got a change, of course, now in tactical um, in the tactical inferences that you can make within the substitutions. So invariably, Peterborough rode their, rode their luck, if you like, to the half-time what did they decide to do? They've got to change the momentum of the game and half-time naturally creates that. So the second half, the momentum goes back to zero, right? So invariably, what's being said at half-time? 
what the tactical message has been said around how we're going to start the second half because we seem to have built you know a natural coherence about how well we start a match but invariably there, there does need to be that scenario planning around right if we're nil nil at Peterborough with half an hour to go who's our 11 rather than maybe as you're describing Chris half an hour to go Gaffer what do you think because then you are being reactive, you're not being proactive. And I would, I have to say, particularly when I work, like, for example, with Howard Wilkinson, he'd just tweak it and we'd score. And when he's done it about the fifth or sixth time, you're like, you know, something else, there's something in this. <laughs> but but I have to say, again, this is a changing dynamic in the modern day game, guys, because in, in that era, coaches could observe on the ball, off the ball, and away from the ball. And what we've got now is a dependency upon laptops. We'll clip it, we'll pause it, we'll have a look at it on Monday. And I see this, particularly when I go to under-21s games, we've got a younger generation of coaches coming through. Yes, the tech savvy, but their ability to observe and diagnose a game is failing. And I think that, although in the end, we're going to have a full culture of that where everybody's body dependent upon the technology. But as you described, Steve Cottrell can see the game. He's a wily old fox. Darren Ferguson can see the game. He's been there and done it. He's a wily old fox. You know, Steve Schumacher is a good coach. He's been well supported by Neil Dewsnip as a director of football, who's a coach developer. So again, what you've got is you've got some disruptive forces in the, in the way that it's gone in terms of the way that maybe some of the coach, the teams have approached it. Gareth Ainsworth was another guy that could do that, an experienced manager. And of course, now they've lost their momentum with him leaving the football club. And it's also significant about what part he played within their culture. There's... So me and Chris spoke about this after we'd recorded on Monday. Um, and it, it goes back to, I guess, what you were saying about fan psychology and Liam Rossini. Me and Chris worked out Liam Rossini's record. I think, was it seven out of nine? He, he lost two out of nine games, I think it was. And obviously then Paul Warren's come in and, you know, he went on. He's a little bit sticky star, but then we flew. And it's just, it just strikes me. Did, did Liam actually, in your opinion, did Liam actually do anything wrong to deserve being dismissed or not getting that role permanently? I, I think there's obviously, there, was, there must have been a disconnect for me, I think, with, with Liam uh, in terms of the disconnect between Liam and the SLT, because obviously they suddenly felt that they didn't have this faith in him. He was always appointed as the interim, if you like. What they were, it's not their work, their 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 pleasure to, to reveal, if you like. They obviously felt that in Paul Warren, there was a newer, there was a different type of skill set around the mechanics of, of of getting their way out of League One. The misnomer around League One is that you have to smash it, and you have to you know long balls, throw ins, and you know be a, be be a team of physicality. When actually the reality is, when we look at some of the sides in the top six, you probably, I would argue, you probably need a, like a contrasting style of play a resilience, a resolute style, a toughness when you go to your Accringtons, your Morecambe's, your Fleetwoods, your midweek fixtures, Exeter City is forthcoming on a Tuesday night. So you need a certain character, but then you also need a different type of character to control possession, dictate tempo, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, move the ball around, particularly when you're playing some of the top six sides, because you are moving more closer to championship standard football. So if if you were in Paul Warren's position now, eight games to go, obviously just coming off the back of two defeats, what would you would would you possibly change the system, change tactics? What what would you look at changing now? Well, I think we haven't we haven't got onto marginal gains, 
I think that what you know, it, it you know, this this is the debate now as we're going into the, the last running. You know what what degree of one percent can we add into the group? Um, I'll come back to that. So I think that I the the, the first review process I think that I would be having would be let's go back to when we were in that unbeaten sequence. What were the behaviours that we were doing that were contributing significantly to this winning run? What is it we were doing in the way that we travelled, the way that we, we played, the way that we trained, the duration of the training, the frequency of the training, the load of the training, the intensity of the training, where, this, where are the clues of success? And what are we not doing now? Uh, so that, and, and then, therefore, you know, can we do the basics excellently? I've said that repeatedly all year. So, for example, the example I gave was retention of possession from throw-ins. Throw it into Chris's feet, he pops it back, we go around the foot and we kick the ball. That's the basics excellently. So that's your three pointer, Chris. Work the ball around the D. Yeah. Bump. Yeah. That's that's doing the the excellence repeatedly, right? Simon line outs. We get we get field position. We get the line out, right? Can we keep keep the ball? So do the are we doing the basics excellently and repeatedly? Because around that, I'll just give you an example from Derby Tri Club. One of the guys has put on the face, but what do you think to compression garments? Are they worth doing? And I felt like going, are you training enough? <laughs> are you, how's your diet? <laughs> are you getting to bed early? Are you drinking? So before we jump on the marginal gains bus, be doing the, the, the basics excellently. What's the point in spending an extra grand on wheels if you're only training twice a week? So, you know, do, do, that's what, I, I have no doubt that's what Steve Cottrell will try and do at Shrewsbury. He can't do the marginal gain stuff. So what he's done is he's gone to that dressing room, right, lads, come on. And he's created, a, and that's another just basic human force, right? Create an unbelievable team spirit. And do it in a way where there's like, right, come on, everyone's writing us off. Let's go and prove people wrong or whatever. Find, you know, and ultimately, Simon Simonex, find your whys. He's, he's created that why board. Now, has that been a why board where up at Moor Farm, where it's just a bit of paperwork? Yeah. You know, they used to call Bill Bezic the decorator because he used to decorate all the dressing rooms with flip charts <laughs> that nobody. So, you know, is it, is it a bit of decoration or or is it is it something of, of genuine meaning? So we've got to get back to the human capital. And, and and invariably around that that could that might be a healing on both sides where the lads have got to give a little bit because ultimately you could say Hurrian, Davis, Chester, McGoldrick, this might be their last chance of a promotion. Make that your driver and your reason why. You you max your birds, your nights, you want to be in the championship, you want to be doing it with Derby County, right? Rather than moving at the end of the year. You know, so I think we're speculating, aren't we, at the end of the day. We're yeah. not in the building, we can't see what's going on and um, you know, we're just creating a healthy debate. See, one thing that when I was involved in, in professional sport, there was one particular coach who, when, okay, with, with, with basketball teams, you've got a maximum of a roster of 12 on the bench. In the 90s, when I was involved in the early noughties, you'd normally run with eight or 10. Um, but this individual coach, when our players went into the changing room, he used to give me a piece of paper for each individual player. And he said, I don't need to talk to that player now. Everything that I need him to understand on his on his matchup in that game, he knows what the, his opposition would do if he'll hook his arm under his armpit to not allow him to, yeah. to, to post play. Will he scream from the left? Will he scream from the right? And the rest of the conversation was minimal before the game. It was all yeah. about motivation and yeah. a couple of minutes of, of winding them up. Do you feel that there is a there's still that 
almost ethos of, of, of coaching that's missing in, in football? Or with your experience, do you, do you spend a lot of time at halftime or pre-game talking to individuals? Or do you, or is it a mindset still where we're in this together? No. What year was that, Chris? Uh, 1999. Yeah, very similar. So 2000, when I was with the Rugby League, we'd do the same. We had credit cards that the players would have. Uh, that was part of my role. So it was all process and performance goals. But what we're talking about there, of course, is top-class performance. And ultimately as well, the values were built into the team long before. In the, in the, we had 11-month running on weekly training sessions. So we didn't have to go to our values. We didn't have to go to chest thumping either. So we could just focus on, particularly high performance, when you're emotional, focus on your good process goals. Not It's not about creating history. It's not about getting promoted. It's about this first set of six. It's about how we play the next the next player, right? And that, I guess that's the processes that you've created out of, um, you know, out of basketball as well. So what we've just, what we've discussed there is something that's 25 years old. So if it's not in football, we've got an issue. Part of my worry then would be we've got this, we've had this huge growth around IDP coaches, individual development player coaches. Matt Helmshaw's obviously joined Paul Warren's group. So that would be part of his responsibility, right? Now, I would argue all players should have an IDP. If I showed you my recruitment roadmap, when I'm presenting and talking to clubs, the sixth stage, fifth or sixth stage is the IDP for every player. So what we're saying is when Diddy comes in, you can still get better, man. It might be get better in terms of your longevity of your career. It might be, can we get a couple of pounds off you, get your body fat levels? So, so you've still got an individual development plan. Same for Curtis. So you still need to keep lifting. You need, still need to keep doing your explosive runs. You need to still keep doing the plyometric training because we need to keep that sharpness and the, the power because there are some basic KPIs minimally required for League One. Now the challenge is if they're being managed within a traditional culture, come in, train for an hour, get off lads, get off your feet, go rest. Because ultimately then there is, a, there is a gap then, Chris, right? That's the gap that Liam Thompson could have fallen down because, and as I described, when Forrest, when we didn't do it, there was too many, there was too much of that going on. The fringe players were allowed to go, hearts and minds, they were allowed to leave at the same time as the rest of the squad. And invariably, you can't do that. They all want to be part of the group, they all want to be part of the team, but ultimately they've all got their individual needs and their individual aspects. And I think that that could be something like, like you've described, that actually should be a norm, but what is common sense isn't always common practice. Tell you what, we've got some good stuff out tonight. If I, we have. We if have they're indeed. not listening to this, you know, we sometimes we do have a chuckle when we throw a few bits out and then it happens. So, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> there is a there is a, there is a there is a chuckle down at the uh at the radio derby, I have to say, sometimes when we come up with some scenarios. <laughs> so sort of on on a final, because we we've spoke well over an hour and I could be here all night. I, I love this stuff. Marginal gains, Darren. Like, I'm I'm a massive cycling nut, and I, I laugh when you were talking about your friend at the triathlon club. I had this similar argument with my dad, where we once bought a pair of thousand pound zip wheels, and I turned around and said to him, "Well, you're still sixteen stone, Dad." Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, a, there's a no, there's a place in um in Moira, isn't there, where they do uh the carbon repair things? And I remember there was a uh a, you know a, a a, a, a cyclist that could lose a couple of kilos and they were asking the uh, it's Darren Bancroft isn't it over that way asking him to try and take a couple of kilos off the bike frame you're like well actually why don't you just train more yeah. <laughs> save yourself a couple of grand but I think there's, 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 there's some, some good analogies actually out of that sport if you, you know I could take lessons out of everywhere and it's your 10,000 hour rule right so 
practice and practice to so cycling's a low skill sport. It, you know, I did the Ashby 20 at the weekend and I, you know, you can guarantee the guy that won it is the lightest. There's a KPI and he's also training, I would say, the hardest at intensity. So you talk about Kipchoge, runs 240k a week and 80, 40, 50k at tempo. <laughs> you know, now, what, now let's go to marginal gains, right? So it, you'll know this, Chris, probably with the, um, uh, what's it called? The indoor site, um, What's the indoor cycling app called now? Everybody's doing. Oh, Peloton. No, yeah, on the other one, Swift. Oh, Swift. I got there. Do apologise for the Swift, listeners yeah. that will to live listening to us there. So what <laughs> Swift created is indoor training, but it's created intensity. It trained indoor training. So winter miles equals summer smiles, right? Well, what's happened now is we've got this intensity, and looking at the studies of Olympic performers, those that go to the Olympics and those that win medals, there's actually there are some some clear differences. And one is their ability to train at intensity, high intensity, match intensity. I've just been looking at some studies actually about match day minus one, you know, preparing for myself and ready for when I, you know, hopefully I get the opportunity to go back in. So ultimately, how's Derby's training? Is it easy or is it, you know, shift it, no problem, just get the ball moving. And I had a personal great example actually when I joined Leeds Rhinos. We went to watch United train and it was the era of um, Van Nistelrooy, Beckham, Giggs, Neville brothers, they weren't mates. That was a key thing. And as a psych, I'm watching the behaviour of them. They, they'd all come out. There were some friendships within the group, but the you know they they were certainly not mates. But you know, one one thing was really quite evident. They just did a circle drill. So you'd like play it in, set it, pass it out. Not, not rocket science. Deary me, they, they they were kicking it hard, and I could shoot. You know, and that training intensity was just like it was incredible. Now the other element that was also within it. There was a small-sided game and Gary Neville's broken down the right and Phil Neville's gone to defend him. And Roy Keane's come around the back to get the ball. You know, he's just supporting from behind. And rather than asking for it, like, give me it, or I'm on, he's gone pinging at me. So the language that they were using was around height, you know. So he does, he turns around, he zips it in and him, he plays around the corner into Van Nistelrooy's feet, set, gets a shot off. So the standards that the players created themselves within the group was around that high intensity and then invariably, at the time, I was doing some work at Chesterfield so you, with the reses. So if we'd have a shot, the ball would go over the bar, and we're like, oh, you know, a bit of banter when somebody puts the ball away. <laughs> at United, it was the opposite. So if the keeper saved it, they're having you. <laughs> you know, so if you if you fizzed it in, you know, like, then we go, that's what we're after, mate. So the standards was created firstly from within, and then Ferguson just kind of, like, managed it accordingly. So my point being is, before we get on marginal gains, are we training at top intensity? It may be shorter now because of the period of the season that we're in, but you've got to train as you play. Because if we're training at 50%, 60%, how then are you building that end, back, you know, back to the cycling analogy, because how then are we building that end stage, stage endurance to be able to cope with the last half hour where it is stretched, where the peloton is at it, where we have got the through and offs going on, you know, where you've got to hang on to the wheel, where you've got to close your eyes, you've got to grip, you know, going up Alice Real on the last, the last ping off it. Oh, on, no, on, on chain gang. Well, there you go. Well, how, how do you create it? By practicing it. Practicing your that, cadence, getting your cadence changed. Exactly. Breathing. So, so now we're back to momentum. Are we quickening it up? Are we slowing it down? Much of my work with rugby league. Let the ball go missing for a minute and a half. We need a breather here. They've just forced a double set of six. Are we playing quick? Are we playing slow? That requires him back to my point about emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence and getting the, the, getting the greatest sum out of your parts. So it isn't around what we're doing off the ball. It's what we're doing off the pitch and on the pitch, right? 
But that 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 requires a lot of plan, a lot of forethought, uh, in my opinion. It's interesting you say that actually about training at match intensity. When when I, when I when I played rugby, I you know, played first team at Derby, and we had we had we had a, we had a coach. He was a player, Alan Dickens. He he was. Yeah, I know Alan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he he coached me. You know, obviously he played for Northampton Saints. Um, but he coached us, and he was our manager. And he would always make sure we had two sessions a week, Tuesday and a Thursday. On a Thursday, on a Tuesday, we'd look at videos from the game on Saturday. Then we'd go out, do a bit of tactical stuff. On Thursday, he switched it up, and we. He said, "I, I want you to train at match. Day. I want you to train now, like you're in a game." So we'd have first team against essentially the second team and we'd hit people full full contact like like we would on a Saturday and we got promoted. Now he he unfortunately left um due to going full time at Northampton Academy. Yeah. And we got another coach in whose aura was more on a Thursday, don't go full contact, I don't want any injuries to Saturday. We we got relegated straight away. We we went up to a higher intensity of league. And we played poorer. We couldn't. We couldn't get a win because it just it struck me now. Now that you've yeah. what you've just said that we trained at a totally different level. Yeah. So it's not surprising. Again, there's classic stuff about white line fever, which was a, a, a was like a handout that went around rugby league 20, 25 years ago. It's me across the line, mate, in training. Puff. Mm. You know the 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 New Zealand the, the All Blacks mantra is trainers are your number two because mm. it's and it you know back to the psychology actually. Top of the show, you know, you talk about when you're in a slump, mm. it's easier to chase than it is to defend. So it's, hand, you know, that pressure, the, the All Blacks create that number, trainers though we're number two. Trainers though, tra- even when we're world number one, we train like we're number two. Mm. It's easier to chase than it is actually maybe to, you know, and you know yourself, Chris, when you're on the front of the pack, everybody's sitting on your wheel, chasing you down. You know, if you get that breakaway, so that, that's that's that mentality. And it all comes down to perception. And perception is created by the leaders. It can either be by the leaders of the senior player group. It can be created by the leadership of the, the coaching staff. And indeed, you know, the motivational and, and working climate that's created by the club's SLT. It, well, talking about cycling, and, and, and I'm, I'm digressing like we all do, it's like the domestique's responsibility. A good domestique knows when his leader needs feeding he knows when to drop off go to the team car grab the flapjacks and he he know he will look at his he doesn't need to even discuss with his sergeant or his leader of the pack when he requires fluid he'll give him he'll give him his bottle he'll say there you go gaffer yeah. in football can can you do that is, yeah, is totally, totally is there a marginal yeah. game yeah totally yeah i mean if you ask a nasa cleaner what does he do he puts astronauts on the moon and that, that, that again, now you bring another issue. Does everybody at Moor Farm feel valued? Does the cleaner That's feel valued? That's a really good question. Really good question. Does the cleaner feel valued? Does the kit man feel valued? So when I said earlier on about Norwich City, they all felt valued. Plymouth did. Off the field, everybody's got to feel that they're contributing. What do you do? Well, I put players on the pitch to get us in the Premier League, mate. That's what I do. Do you? Yeah, yeah, of course I do. That could, so a cleaner keeps the players sterile. By keeping the players sterile, you're keeping your players healthy. The shit, you know, it's interesting actually when we go back to the Sean Dice. Uh, sorry, when we go back to Derby's playoff experience with Aston Villa, Sean Dice has gone into Everton. He's changed absolutely everything about the way that they prepare for the games. He's reviewed every nut and bolt of the process apart from the food. So, you know, so around 
you know, do, do people feel that they're valued? Do they feel that they're contributing in terms of their roles and responsibilities? Hasn't, what you hasn't, then hasn't got looked at Calvert Lewin as well and how he's being injured, and it's even down yeah. to the mattress he sleeps his on. Car, yeah, his car, yeah. <laughs> That's the details. You know, you're driving in. You know, how long did you drive? You know, so and again, that's my point about travelling back from Plymouth after the game. You just disrupted your sleep cycle. So if it's little things that make the difference, there's no such thing as little things, right? So, so there is that. But then I think the clarity in team roles. So there's been much debate, if you like, around James Collins, you know, and and, and him his goal scoring record for this season, for example. So, of course, with James, if we were to write him a job description. He's number one element score goals for the team then assist and then be involved right but he's only as good as the service that he gets so therefore and that was what i i, I flagged that at, at, um i was at the lincoln game it was definitely the west ham game where we were just lumping it from back to front he had no chance against a back back five and ogbonna just coming through the top of him three inches taller mm. so that's that that we all contribute and that's that clarity in the roles and the responsibilities. You know, Laurie McMenemy used to describe, we've got our violinists and our road sweeps, your David Batters and your David Ginolas. You know, there's different roles. Daryl Powell in the middle of midfield with Georgie Klinkladze. And that's that, that was the art of putting that team together with different different skill sets that allow everybody to, to, to thrive, um, you know, around that. Do you, do you find that in, in football that you get a sense of, Sometimes, as a, as a pro yourself, you see this often. And we're talking about Derby County. I'm not asking for individual uh, analogies or anything you've seen in particular. But do you find that um, there does need to be tweaks that that you are that are not necessarily obvious, but are paramount or required in this last eight games, should we say, to to get them over the line? Or do you feel that it's too little, too late? No, it's definitely not too late. No, no, it's not too late at all. But I think um, I, I spoke about an example actually at, at Huddersfield where we slumped, um, and we we'd started off too well. We'd overpunched. Our our budget was was fourteenth in the league. Um, we'd we'd been top six, top eight. James Vaughan had scored twelve goals, player of the month in September, and finished the season with twelve goals. <laughs> so. Um, but what we've done is we we and this is part of the problem of Derby's winning run is that we changed expectation and perception. That was also the start of the end for us at Birmingham. You know we'd gone in and they'd not won at home in over a year. Got beat by eight eight nil by Bournemouth in the previous game. Um, you know second from bottom in the table and with the same budget, same players, we took them to playoff positions. And what happened was expectation. Nothing else had changed. No budget. Um, my budget was a tenth of Derby's for the scouting. So that's where I knew marginal gains, performance processes work. So I think that it's no, it's not too late to change. My point I was going to say with the Huddersfield example was that we'd become toxic. We'd lost 2-0 two, two at home to Ipswich on a Tuesday night. So when Mark Robbins was the manager, and we, I, I thought that was the end of us. Um, we waited for 45 minutes in the manager's office, you know, the old... You know, are they going to come down? They didn't come down. They didn't come down. We're thinking, oh, eventually they came down and we had a, a polite drink and you knew that we were on an egg timer. You could smell it. You know, you, you just knew. So I had a chat with Mark Robbins on the Wednesday. The players were off. And on the Thursday, I did a sports psych session, which was about expectations and appreciations. I can't I can't say on air the words that they called each other, but they were the most vile, you know, they were calling each other the most vile names within the game. 
So we did a simple exercise, which was around Chris and I were centre halves. So I expect you to edit, and therefore and you expect me to edit, and and actually we can talk to each other however we see fit because I expect you to fucking edit, right? Whereas Simon's the centre forward, which was Naki Wells. So as a centre half, I can't I can't expect Simon to do that. I can only appreciate it because I can't do it. So when he comes in short and shows his feet, I appreciate it. When he runs in behind, I appreciate it. So it's a real simple exercise. Anyway, we go to Derby. <laughs> you probably remember this. We got beat 3-1. Uh, Pride Park going for promotion. George Thorne plays that beautiful ball in for Johnny Russell. To, to, you probably remember it, right? But we were 1-0 up. So we've done this exercise. We started the game. We go 1-0 up. Naki gets through one-on-one with Lee Grant. If he scores, it's 2-0. Game over. Minute before half time, uh, uh, Joel Lynch gets sent off. Second bookable. I think it was for time wasting. Now we hadn't realised. I think it was a Millwall game preceding game that Millwall had time wasted. So they'd been in at the referee referees room. So half time, I'm in the referees room having a right Sarah with the officials going, "We need to win this, mate. I've not been funny. I've not been funny, chaps. But we've come to win because this, and, and I can't afford to lose this one because I've got to go to Portway on Monday." <laughs> take the kids down to the primary so so, they, so anyway uh, we come in I go in the dressing room the players are fighting now, that went well then wasn't it <laughs> so from the corner I'd, um, Adam's uh, Alex Smith has come through Adam Clayton and caught him on the ear and it led to a bit of a, an emotional tear up there's some other story around the back of it but I, 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 I won't go into it the point being was we went out for the start of the second half and you scored straight from kickoff. Johnny Russell dances around Oliver Norwood, mm. puts the cross in, and Smithers goes to punch it over the bar, punch mm. it in the back of the net. It's that Forsyth, weren't it? It was Fozzie's goal, wasn't it? I don't know. Sure, it we was lost three one in the end. Yeah. We, we had, we had. An, I think Peter Clark got sent. I finished the game with nine men. <laughs> right. What's the point? So, what's the point of the story? Chairman, come down. Brilliant lads. Brilliant, unbelievable lads died in the boots. Rat it. That's Huddersfield Town. You could see it, so, so you could see straight away the board of directors have suddenly got more faith in us. We then went to the end of the season unbeaten. So that exercise, it, it took more than 72 hours for it to sink in, and that's the point, but we'd done the exercise. So we'd gone through, so we're going to stick to the process now. Expect it off each other, if you're in the same position, appreciate everybody else. That's all we're allowed to do, just appreciate what we're doing. Well done, pass it. Well done, come and go show me the ball again. You get tight. So... Uh, so around the, so he just turns the, the the dialogue within the group, and it was enough mm. uh, to the end of the season. So that that that's that's that so that for me is it can be changed. It can be changed in a heartbeat, mm. but it's around two things: one, having the strength of leadership to do it, and the courage and your conviction. Leadership needs to be visible, and two, the players need to be receptive to taking it on board. But there'll be those other variables that we've discussed earlier within the show. So it's absolutely possible. What is interesting, I guess, at this point of view, though is there are some data points now that are starting to land. We are what we are, and the teams know who they are and what they are. So as I said earlier, you might get that freaky start from Cambridge, but they were unable to sustain it. And there's been much fuss, interestingly, around Harry Kane's goal scoring record this week, because I think he scored four goals against top teams and the rest have been against the other sides. So if you, let's look at David McGoldrick, he scored once against Ricks and he's, he's scored in, in games you know, where... Invariably, does it? You know, they're the games that we're expected to win. So that's that's now the step change that we can't have that dependency upon Didzy to score the goals against Ipswich. And what's also interesting now is we look at this top eight with Chef Wednesday stuttering, 
what we've now seen, of course, is that that final game of the season where we were up to Sheffield Wednesday might be on the beach. That might go all the way to the wire. And with Pompey putting that late run in, you've still got that 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 penultimate game of the season with it with it all to play for. Exeter have got a big say as well this season. They've got quite a, you know a large number of the top six teams still to play, and of course we've got to go down on a Tuesday night. So around your question, Chris, the mentality and the preparation modality for away games has to change because if you keep on doing what you're doing, you're going to keep on getting what you're getting. So if it's a, if it's going down the night before, lazy bed, lazy walk, half eleven, pre-match, get on the bus, easy warm up, we'll get this going, lads, don't worry. If that's what they've been doing in the past, you need to absolutely change it because the formula now after 38 games, hasn't worked away from home and therefore they need to change it. So it can be done. That's the main thing. It can be done. And it, you know, the other thing as well, it's sport, yeah. right? That's why we love it. So back to the Billy Davis season, flunked it you know, from the automatic promotion, but it came from the lads from within the dressing room that turned it around and then ultimately, you know, catapulted it to that, to that you know, um, to the playoffs. What is interesting, both analogies, of course, that season <laughs> was that Derby finished third and got up, and then the year we we slumped in 2009-2010 and, and Swansea got up, they were, of course, both teams were third that season. The year we did, we, we should have really have done it at, at, at Forest, and we didn't, was when Blackpool did it, and of course, Blackpool did it by dropping into that sixth six place slot. So, find a way. Ultimately, yeah. find a way. And I think you'll both know about elite sport, Elite sport doesn't fit in a bell curve. Elite sport isn't normal. So therefore be the difference. That's your message, isn't it? Be the difference. Find you know, find that spark. You be the spark. Let's let's bust all the data points. Uh and, and within that you've always got that hope because that's why that's what keeps us so attracted to, to, to watching sport day in, day out. It does indeed, Darren. It's been an absolutely incredible, insightful show. Uh absolute you know, pleasure to have you on. Um, Chris, anything left to say? We've no, run out of well, we haven't run out of time. You said you could have gone on, Chris. We've only just scratched the surface, chat. I know. I know. <laughs> well, I was I was going to talk about uh, centre offs, and a lot of people moan about the way the centre offs playing at the moment. But we can leave that for a part two with Darren Robson, no doubt. That's okay with you, Darren. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I think you know, it is interesting with this this aspect because we care. Yeah, you know, like that. You know, it's not. I hope um, you know either the officials or the fans of the club think that we're having swipes at you know the state of the football club because because we're not. It's just that we care, and that that's the embodiment I think out of what happened last season when the fans marched was that the the the, the greater and deeper meaning of the football club within the city in which all three of us you know live and reside, you know, pr- provides that that aspect, and I think it when you when you're not in within you know football thing always thinks it's knows better yeah. um uh, it, it does um and again sociologists will will have, have demonstrated lots of studies where key stakeholders in clubs think they know better than the people on the outside and sometimes it can be frustrating because you can see some real blind spots or some bumps in the road and of course it you know it's just because you care and you want to contribute mm. yeah i agree i agree um but yeah no it's been it's been like i said we could probably chat for hours but we will have to end it there. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Darren. As I said, we'll definitely have to get you you back on again. And you know, I've, I've learned a heck of a lot from listening to you. And I'm sure uh, all the listeners have as well. Chris, I'm sure you have. 
Um, as I say, thank you guys for those who have listened. I said at the start of the show, remember you can like, share, retweet, all that sort of stuff. You know, it's it's great help for the show, helps us expand even more, helps us get bigger. Um, but yeah, well, me and Chris will be back Monday. Hopefully, we'll be talking about a win against Ipswich. But until then, guys, as you know, as always, come on, Derby.